0: It's Wednesday, June 17th. This is The Current Music News. I'm Jay Gabler. Today we bring you a special episode. This is my conversation with Nabil Ayers, who's the U.S. General Manager for the record label 4AD. He's also a musician and a writer, and recently in the New York Times he had an interview with Ed Eckstein, who was the first black person to be appointed head of a major label in the U.S. We talked about that conversation, and we talked about all the conversations happening in the industry around Blackout Tuesday. Well, I'm glad to be connecting with Nabil Ayers, uh, U.S. General Manager of 4AD, a U.K.-based record label that is home to, it seems like, about half the artists on The Current's playlist. Grimes, The National, Big Thief, Velvet and Grony, U.S. Girls, the list goes on and on.
1: Yeah, you guys are very kind to us.
0: Oh well, thanks for helping bring all this music uh, into the world. So, just sort of for the layperson, your job as U.S. general manager for this record label, what you know, what does a day look like for you? What does your job entail?
1: Right. I mean, it's. It's hard to explain, I've been trying to explain it to my mom for the whole 11 years that I think I've worked there, but you know, there are people in our office who obviously work with the radio stations like yourselves, there are people whose job it is to try to get reviews and do press and get our bands on TV, and there are people who do advertising and marketing and a lot of back-end stuff like accounting and artwork and design and make videos and we really have a lot of people who do very specific things. And it's my job to sort of oversee all those people and make sure it happens in, I guess, a cohesive way and figure out the timing and work closely with the artists and their managers and the UK label where things are technically based. So it's really, in a way, there's not a lot that I do myself. It's a lot of meetings, it's a lot of talking to people, a lot of emails and a lot of coordination, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. And you are also a writer and a musician, which kind of brings us to the specific impetus behind our conversation. Uh, as a musician you've played with, you pointed out to me earlier, Tommy Stinson.
1: Right, Minnesota's of course. Own. I didn't even think about the Minneapolis connection. That's right, yeah, that was, and I remember, I think we played two nights in a row on that tour in Minneapolis. It was really fun. Yeah. A long
0: time ago, yeah. That was it, 2004, you said?
1: That sounds right, Yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, And you've played with bands including The Lemons, who signed to Mercury Records in 1995, which was, you've said, the first time you got to meet Ed Eckstein, uh, who you recently caught up with again. He was head of Mercury Records at the time and was the first black individual to be appointed head of a major U.S. record label.
1: Right. Yeah, that was a really interesting story. I mean, at the time it was 1995. It was a long time ago. The internet wasn't what it is now, so it wasn't, you know, I remember hearing that he came from an R&D background and that he was the first black president of a major label, but that's kind of all I knew, and it it wasn't very easy to just look up and figure out everything, so so, and you know, we didn't work that closely with Ed, I think we just had the privilege of meeting him quickly because we were a new band signing to the label and that's something you get to do, Um, and so we sat and talked to him for 10 or 15 minutes and he seemed great, but I didn't get to really talk to him about any of that, we just talked about my band, And that was kind of that. And then, um, you know, I've been writing a memoir and some of that is in it, my story about being in the lemons and then even that actual meeting and what I was really thinking then. Um, And so it kind of got back into my head. And so a few months ago, I decided to try to reach out to Ed and he was very easy to get a hold of and he lives in LA. And so I was there in January and that's when we actually met and had a long lunch. And he has such a more interesting past than I'd realized and sort of got some great stories from him. And you know, that was pretty recently so Fast forward to a couple of weeks ago, when I started hearing about Blackout Tuesday, um, you know, my company, we were kind of, of course, into the idea and the cause and the the concept of people pausing to think about everything that's happening in the world and how they contribute and make change. Um, And we did decide to close our office for the day. And so personally, when I decided what I would do, I thought, how, you know, how can I do something meaningful, something connected? Um, I thought, wow, it'd be great to just call Ed again. That would be fun. We had such a great conversation a few months ago, it feels very appropriate, and, um, and then of course the sort of other part of my brain, the writer part, was like, wow, and it would be even more interesting to call him and document that conversation, sort of try to make it an interview about race in the music industry then and now and what he's experienced and what I've experienced. So that turned into this piece that ran two days after the interview in the New York Times, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. So thinking back now in that
0: conversation, what has really stuck with you? What impressed you most about uh, the substance of your conversation?
1: Um, Oh, man, there's so much. I mean, his background is incredible. You know, he's the son of Billy Eckstein, who was a very famous singer in the 50s and 60s, probably even earlier, um, who I wasn't super familiar with, I'd always heard of, but I didn't realize just how famous he was. He was friends with Jimmy Carter and Willie Mays, I mean, really a big star. So this is kind of where Ed grew up. Um, And he had amazing stories about working for Quincy Jones, which was kind of his first real job for 10 or 11 years before he entered the major label system. Um, But I'm trying to think, I mean, what really struck me most about him is how, you know, despite being a black man in the music industry, none of his stories were about how difficult it was for him and how hard it was. And of course those stories exist and they need to be told. But it's also really nice to hear the opposite, that he's smart and talented and lucky, which of course always applies and and really excelled for those reasons.
0: Yeah, you talked about color lines in the music industry in terms of, he seemed to be, have some maybe frustration around the fact that, you know, historically, the music industry has thought that, well, if you look this way, this is the kind of music that you can make and that you can work in on the industry side, whereas if you look this way, you do that kind of music, and he he kind of wanted to see that broken down.
1: Yeah, that, that's something that the conversation Ed and I had about that, which isn't in the piece, but I remember I owned a record store when I lived in Seattle for a long time. It was called Sonic Boom, and uh Khalees, who I think everyone knows from that song, Milkshake, but she has earlier records. There's a song called Caught Out There that the Neptunes produced. And I think this was like 1999 or 2000. And I remember seeing the video on MTV and thinking, whoa, what is this? Why haven't I heard of this? I, I own a record store. I know the rep from that label, all this stuff. And I called the rep the next day, you know, saying, what's the story with her? Can we get a copy? And the, the rep said, oh, that's, that's on the urban side. We're not working that. And I remember saying like, well, what What do you mean? <laughs> I'm a record store, I sell music, I saw this video, you work for the company, and it, it wasn't like, no, we won't send you a copy, but it was like, no, we're just not really, that's not on my list of things to talk about, we'll get you a CD, but but that's that. And then soon after that, on the same label, that Nika Costa record came out, and there's a song called Like a Feather, Khalees is black, Nika Costa is white, I think. I might be wrong. Um, but. And that record was absolutely worked by those people to our store. And I think it was for those reasons. I think this is alternative, this is R&B because of the race of the people involved. And it was, uh, it was really weird. And, and I think maybe I'd been really naive at the time because our store was so alternative indie um, that it just never happened to me in that way. It was never put right in front of me like that, but it was so like strange to me. It was like, oh, no, we're not touching that because that's urban.
0: Yeah, that seems like what so many conversations right now are about, generally speaking, the fact that, you know, we know we have this, you know, horrible history of racial segregation and slavery in the U.S. And, you know, there was a sense like, oh, we've been working on this for so long now, right? You know, things must have got better. And, well, of course, in some senses, but so many things are are the same.
1: Right. But some of of the, I mean, I think some of the the But working on it for so long stuff, then things tend to sink in and remain as they are, like these urban departments. But the amazing developments this week, I think, are both universal, Mm -hmm. right? And the Grammys getting rid of that word. And I think that's a huge, huge step from two huge organizations who can really help make a difference. So it is still happening.
0: So to clarify, getting rid of the word urban.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think there were two or three Grammy Awards that included the, you know, best urban best urban, I'm totally forgetting the awards, but definitely used to include the word urban. And I think now maybe it's progressive R&D, but they deleted the word or changed changed the definition, which is great.
0: So now that your uh, interview with Ed is out there, and I'm sure a lot of your friends and colleagues in the industry have read it, what conversations have you you been hearing around that interview? And what have people been saying to you or any reactions?
1: I've I've had incredibly great feedback, and I'm I'm really surprised that I didn't get any bad feedback because that... As someone, I've been writing a lot of shorter pieces like that, and they're usually connected to music and race and kind of my background, and as much as I tend to get good comments, I always get bad comments, whether it's a comment on a tweet or something anonymous on the internet, and maybe it's out there, but I haven't found anything about this piece, which surprises me, and which I think is great, but I've gotten overwhelmingly good feedback from people basically saying, Ed was great, these stories need to be told, thank you, so it's really exciting. All right. In the wake of Blackout
0: Tuesday and all the discussions around that, have you seen any other sort of hopeful signs in the industry or indications that uh, some real change might happen and not just um, you know symbolic gestures?
1: It feels like it I mean everyone everyone who's making a statement seems to be, you know obviously for political reasons, but hopefully for good reasons too, saying not just Black Lives Matter but Black Lives Matter and here are the three or four things we're doing to make change in the future. So it's not just a statement, but it's actually a statement of future action to come. So I've seen tons of that. And it, you know, I don't know if it'll ever be perfect, but it absolutely feels like there's a lot happening in the music business right now. The two women who started Blackout Tuesday are on the cover of Billboard, um, which is incredible because, I mean, Blackout Tuesday was a week and a half ago or something like that. I mean, it had to have they had to have replaced another cover and gotten together this story and this photo shoot incredibly quickly which i think is a, a testament to billboard seeing something important and making a good move
0: yeah it's it's been really impressive how all the conversations of the past two weeks of course about police brutality um the death of george floyd but about everybody in every industry no matter what corner of america or even the world you're in looking and saying This isn't just about the police. This is about me. This is about our industry. This is about what can what can we do? And this is right. And yeah, as much as
1: it feels like it's sort of in our bubble, when I do look outside or hear things, the NASCAR thing. I mean, it really is happening. You know, Taylor Swift, who obviously music, but I think falls outside of my bubble. But she was one of the first people to say something about Trump and George Floyd, and I thought that was really impressive.
0: Yeah. Well, and another thing that people were saying around Blackout Tuesday was, okay, well, so here's what labels and the music industry can do moving forward, but let's look back as well and look at some of the contracts that were put in place. And, yeah, yeah I mean, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and, I mean, I, I,
1: you know, I can't speak with absolute authority. I don't know what those deals look sure, sure. like. This is all based on conjecture. But notoriously, labels, especially way back 40s, 50s, 60s, um, gave black artists much less good deals than white artists artists who sold tons of records artists who made money themselves and made money for labels. Um, And I mean certainly white artists also got bad deals but supposedly black artists got worse deals and there's a lot of people saying it's time for some of these labels to not only I mean you know Warner for example doing this hundred million dollar fund is great and I. Again, don't know that Warner has bad deals with labels, but if they did, in addition to that $100 million fund, it would be great if they went back and revisited those deals and did so retroactively. Yeah, well, and
0: labels like Warner Brothers have now absorbed so many other labels that they, you know, they inherit the the contracts that, you know, were made by other people at other times and, yeah. Yeah, and people are talking about, so now BMG is saying they're going to go and look at all of their historic contracts, and people are talking about this idea of unrecouped debt, which I think the average music fan might not realize, wait a second, an artist, even an artist I might think of as legendary, you know, right, right. could owe their label money still?
1: Right, not, not, not literally owe, but I guess be in debt to via sales Meaning, you know, when you sign with a record company, you typically, and I guess I'm talking more about bigger labels or major labels, as an artist, you typically get an advance, which is an amount of money that is basically saying, here's some money now, because we think this is money you will make later through sales. So you get the advance, you start selling records, the label spends money on things and advertising and radio promotion and whatever, and then you as the artist get generally a small percentage of the sales, which puts that advance and all those expenses closer to zero. And once it gets to zero, you start then getting more money. And what they're saying is after two decades, there might be artists who are unrecouped, who still owe money on that balance and that label should just let that go and start paying them out. Yeah. So, well, thank you for talking about
0: you know, this your conversation with Ed and all these topics, and congrats on, uh, maybe a little early to say congrats, but your memoir. This is going to be fantastic.
1: Thank you. Still working on it, but thanks for having me. This has been great. Yeah, all right, well, take care. Thank you. Okay, you too. Thanks. That's our
0: episode for today. We'll be back with more updates, so you can like and follow us. You can be sure to catch those, and you can listen to The Current on your radio, on your smart speaker, on our web stream, and on our app. And click in the comments to let us know what music news stories are meaningful to you right now.